Well, here we are. We've come to the end, haven't we? Not just of this sermon series, but to the end of the Old Testament. Over the last three months or so, we have taken up the study of what is most commonly known as the Minor Prophets, walking through these last 12 books of the Old Testament, known more commonly in ancient times as the Twelve, we find here the end of them. They were 12 peculiar men. We have taken note of that each step of the way. They had peculiar messages and they spoke at peculiar times and in peculiar ways. But all of them were sent by God as we come to see for one purpose. They were sent by God for one aim. To call God's people back, not to a ritualism, not to a, a moralism or a legalism, but to worship God from a true and pure heart. So the minor prophets we've seen take it, have taken up this great task of reformation and renewal, of putting things back as they should have been. They've tried to take what they God's people had twisted in sin and to set it straight. And seeing things and setting things right to pave the way for something even better. And so each step of the way I've made the argument that what these prophets are trying to do is to reform and bring reformation and renewal to God's people so that a revival may take place. I've made note of that each step of the way, or at least I've tried to. That revival is always after reformation, of a reforming. And so we see throughout church history, even the great awakenings took place after times of fervent prayer and the people returning to God. And so that's been my prayer for us throughout this series that as we consider these words of the Lord given to a people in need of reformation around God's love and around God's call to holiness, that we too would have a return, a growing desire to be renewed with a zeal for God and for His kingdom. And so we first saw this with Hosea, didn't we? Hosea revealed to us, I'm going to go through all of them right now so you can hear what they all did. Hosea, if you want to write this down. Hosea revealed to us that God's heart is always for His people. Even though they are unfaithful, He is a faithful God. And Joel revealed what that faithfulness looks like in the depths of their sin and this great call for judgment on the whole earth that salvation would come from God toward all those who repent and believe in Him. And then Amos helped us see how to actually live then lives of repentance One's full of mercy and care for one another. Then we got to Obadiah. He began to give us a vision of what God would do with this caring people by showing us that, that, that His kingdom, this kingdom belonged to the Lord. And then Jonah helped us see exactly what that kingdom would look like. That it was a kingdom not just of Jews, but Gentiles as well. Because the kingdom doesn't just belong to God, but salvation itself belongs to Him. From there, Micah taught us that the kingdom of the saved would be ushered in by this merciful shepherd who would lead them there. 
But Nahum helped us see that this merciful shepherd would also be the king of the universe who would crush all of his enemies. Then we got to Habakkuk. Habakkuk asked us the question, but how then shall we live? If we have this shepherd king before us, how do we live? Drawing us ourselves to seek a prayerful reformation in our own day. Why? Well, Zephaniah made that clear. By holding out this coming day of the Lord, this, this future day when God would return and God's redeemed would be welcomed into their salvation, but God's enemies would enter into judgment. So Haggai gave us these marching orders to work, to actually labor to see God's kingdom built in this day. Funny concept, once God saves us, we're not just puppets. We actually have to do something then. And so Zechariah helped us see what it looks like to be a part of this kingdom, how this kingdom should look, and as we long and look for this long-awaited shepherd king. That's 11. Which brings us to Malachi. Malachi. It's the final book of the Old Testament. Why? Because on the one hand, it brings us all the teachings of the minor prophets to a head. It brings everything to the cusp and puts everything on our doorsteps. But at the same time, it also presses the very problem of why these prophets' ministry was necessary on the one hand and was not enough on the other. See, Malachi, as we come to see, prophesied some 100 years after the Jews, the Israelites, had made their way back from captivity in Babylon. They had come back to do what? Well, we've studied this. We've thought about this. They came back to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the city, and the climax of the whole thing was to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And so here they are, a hundred years later. How are we doing? That's what Malachi's all about. A hundred years later, we find Jerusalem not as we should expect it to be. We would come there and we would expect it to be the new Eden, Right? They came back and they rebuilt it. We should be a land of righteousness, a land of glory, of God's very dwelling place among the people. Are we back to the golden years? No, what do we find? As I've often said, when something in our house gets broken, this is why we can't have nice things. And that's what we find here with the Israelites in this new Jerusalem. It's not very new at all. In fact, the problems that had broke God's people to begin with, are still happening. Much like we find after God purges the earth of all people in Noah's day, Noah and his family come, and they repopulate the earth, and guess what happens? Sin. It's the same thing we find here. God, we're going to see today, reveals this to His people one more time in the Old Testament in three specific ways. As we close this series on the Minor Prophets. So you have them there in your bulletin, three points. Uh, I'll point them out, though, if you're taking notes in your own journal. First, we find God exposing our sin in chapters 1 and 2. Then, in chapter 3, we find God confronting our sin. But finally, in chapter 4, we have a question. Will God be ending our sin? So God exposes it, He confronts it, but will He end it? It's this lingering question that we come to at the very end. And we'll get there. But my prayer for us, as it's been for this whole series, is that God would use this book 
as He intended it for those who was delivered to so long ago. That Malachi's word would light a fire under us for holiness and to go to the only one who can truly make us holy. So let's jump in and look at chapter 1. Let me read for us the first five verses there in Malachi 1, 1 through 5. It says there, The oracle of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his... I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So here we are, we're introduced now to this prophet Malachi. Here in the first verse, we are immediately thrown into the main form the book takes. We don't get very much information about Malachi like we did with some of the other prophets. We're not told anything except this is the word that he has received, and it is the word that is to be given to God's people. And we see that this happens over and over in the book in a certain and specific way. And if you can get this way from the beginning, how Malachi is structured, it helps you understand the whole thing. And it's really this back and forth. It's what we might call an accusation and a rebuttal or a charge and a defense. God says one thing, the people respond, and then God lays them to waste. It's pretty much how it goes over and over. And so this happens, as I said, six different times in the first two points that we're going to look at. We find that it's either God or a couple times it's God's people that they declare a truth or make a claim, and then the other pushes back, and so the first must defend themselves. So in point one, we find this really take three different aspects. We see this back and forth happen over doubt, devotion, and divorce. That's what we see here in the first two chapters as God exposes their sins. It's the sins of doubt, devotion, and divorce. So let's look there at two through five. That's the first one. You see what I mean? God begins by making this claim that He has made since Hosea, since the first minor prophet. And what is that claim? It's that He loves His people. He loves them. He can't make it any more clear. I have loved you. He has this great affection, this great covenant faithfulness that he has kept with his people, but we immediately see that this claim is questioned by them, isn't it? How have you loved us? I don't know if you've ever experienced this, parents, as a parent, where you declare some giant life-guiding truth over your children only to have them question it immediately. If you touch that, it's caught. It's going to burn you. How do you know that it's going to burn me? What's the temptation? Fine. You don't think that I might go right ahead. I'll show you. You'll see. But God sets the standard for fatherhood here, doesn't he? He shows us what true fatherhood looks like. Instead of smashing this questioning people into utter pieces, he tenderly reminds them of how he has been there. He tenderly walks with them. Particularly, he says that he's loved them in his choosing of Jacob, their ancient forefather, over Esau and the nation of Edom that came from Esau. 
In fact, back in Obadiah, we learned about God's judgment on the nation of Edom for their refusal to help Israel in a time of great need. So God begins by revealing here the root of all their sin. And it's really what it is. It is the very root of all of their struggles. And what is it? It's their doubt. This is not the kind of doubt, though, we should make clear, just to define what do we mean when we talk about doubt or sinful doubt. This is not the kind of doubt that walks in faith and seeks answers from God. Right? Sometimes we have that kind of doubt where we come before the Lord and we're like, well, Lord, I don't understand, but I want to. Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you. Can you please help me? That's not the kind of doubt they have, is it? The kind of doubt they have here is the kind that questions whether or not God even cares. This is the kind of doubt that marks what we would call unbelief or a refusal to believe. And where does it lead? Well, let's just keep going there and we find out. Picking up in verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You see how, how the rebuttal, here's the rebuttal. How have we despised your name? And now he's going to give a defense. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor... Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of the Lord, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. So in the first place, God has sought to remind his people of his love for them. But they question it with doubt. And now we see God move deeper into their doubt by questioning what? Where is his honor? Where is their fear of the Lord? If he is this God who has loved them in this way as a father and as a master, why have they not honored him as such? Why have they not worshipped him as he surely deserves? And their response? Well, you guys better get used to it because it's the response they have every time. How have we not honored you? Have we not done everything that you've asked? Where have we messed up? And God exposes it, doesn't he? He exposes it by saying, look at these sacrifices that you bring me. You bring me goats that can't see and sheep that are vomiting everywhere all over the temple because they're sick. God reminds them of the necessity of having sacrifices that are pure and without blemish. He reminds them that the sacrifices they offer reflect their very heart that they give. He reveals that their doubt of His love has now led to a decline in their devotion to Him. It's a twisting of their very worship, is it not? This leads him to go on down there in verses 11 and 12 to say, 
from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And you're like, well, that's great. We believe that. We want that. We're about submissions. We want to see his name great among the nations. And then he comes with a but, like a paddle. He says, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. So thus far we have now this rising doubt that's leading to a declining devotion. What else could possibly go wrong? Well, a lot, evidently. Look down at chapter 2 now in verse 2. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart and to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Jump down to verse 10 now. Have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant? Of our fathers. Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. What do we have here? What's going on? Well, God is now offering a third statement, a third claim, if you will. But this time, it isn't about Him. It isn't about what He deserves, but it's about now how they are living. And particularly, He's speaking about marriage here, which was the picture Hosea played out in his message. Only this time, it's not about God and His people. No, this time, it's a lot more than a picture this is something that's actually going on. Look back at Malachi 2.13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? They say, we, we have come contrite before the Lord, and He won't receive our offerings. He has removed Himself from us. He will not listen to us or show us favor any longer. Why? They say 14, but you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. What do we find now? We find that the sin of ungodly divorce has started to spread throughout the people. 
It's divorce of a particularly bad kind. Earlier it said that they married the daughter of foreign gods. And here we find that they're leaving this covenant relationship with their wives and their children. What is this? We find that the men of Israel now are chasing after the women of the world, abandoning the wives of their youth to go find some new fling with a woman who worships some new god thing. We're reminded of the great breaking that divorce so often is, especially when betrayal on this level is involved. As God says there, did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What then was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So we have here in these first three debates, God bringing to His people 100 years after the rebuilding of the temple these charges of their doubt, their lack of of devotion, and how their lack of devotion has now rolled over into their lives, particularly in this way of divorce. What do we do with that? What do we do with this questioning doubt and this declining devotion and this crushing divorce? Well, friends, we see the pattern. I don't know about you, but as I read it, my own heart is exposed as well as theirs is. Oh, friends, that we would see and be drawn to repentance here. What do we have here but every one of our problems still to this day? What do we have here but the very pattern even our own church can and may fall into? We began to remove ourselves from God, doubting whether He's good, whether He's faithful, whether He's strong. We question Him in every providence and utter doubt in every direction He provides. There's no trust. There's no assurance. And our hearts begin to grow cold. I wonder if you feel that way this morning even as hot as it is in here. Or to ask it another way, is your heart burning with joy and trust in the Lord, even if you're in a really difficult season? Does this text expose your sin of doubting God? Where does that doubt always move to if it's not dealt with? To your devotion, to your worship, I realize realize that none of us brought any blind sheep or vomiting goats in here this morning. But we're still called, as Romans 12 tells us, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That we're called to, to give ourselves to God, to the gathering of His people, to, to, to serving the kingdom of God by doing hard things. And so in our doubt, what inevitably happens? But our devotion to Him begins to wane. Our devotion to Christ begins to wane. Our devotion to God's people begins to slip. This is what we seem to miss so often in the lives, our lives as worshipers of God. That the reason we are not worshiping God with all that we are is not because the music is not upbeat enough. It's not because we don't have enough Bible verse mugs at our house. It is even because the preacher stopped preaching fire sermons. 
No, the reason that our worship begins to fail and our devotion to God begins to fail and there's coldness and distance, not just in our communion with God, but our communion with one another, the deadness of our devotion arises out of a lack of knowing God. Why does the psalmist discuss communion with God so much? Why did Malachi make it a point here to talk about how lame their sacrifices were? Because the seriousness of worship, the seriousness of your devotion to God and to His kingdom is inseparably tied to the seriousness of your communion with Him. And so, friends, we must ask ourselves, if we as a people are going to labor on for the kingdom of God here in this place until Christ returns, it must start here. The Reformation must start right here in our very hearts. It must start in the right worship and honoring God as our Father and submitting to God as our Master, flowing out of a heart of faith that He is who He says He is. We must taste and see that He is good because a failure to move toward God will not stay in your hearts. And this is the reality that we experience all the time. That just because you can sin in private and sin in the dark doesn't mean that that sin is going to stay there. It's like a chihuahua in a cage. It must get out. And it'll start gnawing on everything it can once it does. That's exactly what happened. Because these so-called men of God were not men of God after all. Not only were they not worshiping God as they should, but they began to leave their wives. I toyed with whether even to say this, but brothers, if any of you are toying with such an idea, stop it and repent. If you cast your eyes upon things that are not your wife, stop it and repent. It's so interesting that it has revealed itself in divorce. In our own time, it, it's still divorce, or maybe it's even questioning the validity and the purpose of marriage between a man and a woman to begin with. But especially for us who are married and have children, and you single brothers and sisters, or, or you senior adult brothers and sisters, this is where you can greatly encourage those of us who are married and have children. I want to help you help us, because this is what we need to hear. Because we too run a risk of rebellion against God. It all begins with right worship. It all begins with right knowing God and loving God and being devoted to God that actually puts our marriage and our family on the line. Because that's where the death spiral always goes, especially for us men. Because they were the problem here. Let me talk about how we very well may be the problem around here. This is what we need to understand about godly headship. This is what we need to understand about the charge God gives husbands and fathers specifically. God's desire is to build His kingdom through a godly seed. And in the Old Testament, that represented a, a, an actual biological generation. But in the New Testament, we see under the New Covenant, it's through a spiritual regeneration. But that doesn't absolve us as husbands and fathers 
to be the ones who are evangelizing our children and discipling our wives. God's desire is to build His kingdom generation after generation through godly men who step up to the plate and lead their families. God has promised to keep His church alive until Christ returns. God has promised to sustain His people if they turn to Him. And God has promised to wash us clean from all of our sin if we turn to Jesus Christ and place our faith and trust in Him. But how will the next generation know if we're not about it? This is why we need, obviously, men, men working in children's ministry. That maybe goes without saying. But this is also why we need godly fathers who take responsibility for their households. Oh God, please protect us from this death spiral. May He keep our hearts warm and emblazoned for Him. May He mark our worship with purity and truth and some excitement because we have experienced Him. May our lives be marked by it in our homes and in our church. May He make us men who care more about praying together as a church. May He make us women who care more about studying the Word together. May He redeem the children through the faithful declaring of the gospel in their homes and in their church. So friends, do you feel exposed here? Because I do. Maybe we need to open the front at the end of the service. Come down and get on our knees. I feel my need. I want God to deal with my sin and rid me of it so that I can glorify Him. That's exactly what He does as we turn to point two. Let's look back at Malachi 2. Pick up in verse 17. It's the last verse of the chapter. Some of your translations may rightly impart it to the next section. It says there, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Let's keep going. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in the righteousness of the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so in the first point there, God uses these three questions to really open their own eyes to their sin. But now what do we see God doing? What He's going to do is He's going to come in and he's going to get at their sin. He's not just going to say, hey, look, you're sinful. He's now going to come in and confront it and press it and push them. He's going to get to work on them as God so faithfully does. And friends, just to say, we, we need this as well. Sin is walking contrary to God 
And the only way that we will be rid of it is if God comes in and does the surgery to cut it out of our lives. The first way he deals with this is by even showing up. Just showing up. You see the main two questions that God confronts there in verse 17. How have we wearied God and where is this God of justice? God says, here I am. I didn't go anywhere. And this is how you've wearied me. God says, your problem, the problem of doubt from chapter 1 springs out of that you question whether I'm even here. And if I am, what will I be about? He says, because you pretend that I'm not really me and that I'm not really the God of your fathers, you take what is evil and lie about me and say, no, that's actually good. And God thinks that that's good. And friends, don't we know so many Christians and so many churches who have taken this very posture before the Lord? May He protect us. I mean, maybe you're even tempted to it today. To take what the world says is good, but God says is evil, and to flip it. To question whether God is actually just in His judgments. But friends, God will not stand for it. He will not stand for it. This is why He says that He sends a messenger. Now I want you to hold onto the prophetic nature of that claim. We're going to come back to this messenger at the very end of the book. But it's worth noting here that in fact the Hebrew word for messenger is where we get the name Malachi from. This name Malachi means messenger. So in some sense God has sent His Malachi to declare the truth that He is through this very prophecy. He's using Malachi as the refiner here a bit. Now he's pointing ahead, and we'll get to that. But what is it that he's bringing? What is this refining that Malachi is doing? What is the message of this prophecy? It's that God would confront their sin of unbelief by saying, I'm here. I know what's going on, and your sin is not the last word. That's what verse 5 gets at when it says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And friends, what we see here is that in a world that's always clamoring for some sort of of man-made justice in the world, we have a word to hear this morning. And that is that our God is a God of true justice. That God doesn't need some resource or some ministry or some action group or nonprofit, but instead He invites us into what He is already doing. He calls us to form and reform our pursuits of mercy and mercy ministry around His and His character. Not around what the world thinks is fashionable, to be up in arms over this week or open arms over next week. And this again flowers into the next section, so let's keep reading. Pick up in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now let me just stop here and say this. You would think that he would say, so therefore, children of Jacob, you're going to be consumed. But that's not in his character. Because he has chosen them and loved them and made covenant with them, He's going to be faithful to His promises. He's going to keep them. He's going to save them. That's His promise here. He says, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from My statues and have not kept them. Return to Me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, and here's the question, how shall we return? 
Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to rest, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now we find another set of back and forth, right? We're now in the fifth one. That God and His people, it moves from the motives of their heart to the movement of their wallets. That's really what he's getting at here, isn't it? He accuses them of holding back to contributing to the work of the temple and sacrificial giving. We see this term tithe mentioned here. It's a term that we throw around sometimes. Though do we really know what it means? What's he talking about here in this idea of tithe? Well, it's a term that's used throughout the Bible, but particularly used in the law of God, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Well, what's it all about? Well, the term tithe simply means a tenth. It was about the people giving a tenth of their produce to the priest as an inheritance from the Lord. The promise back in Leviticus is that God is not going to give an inheritance to the tribe of Levi because the people are going to support those who are serving as their priests. It meant that they were then sacrificially entrusting the fruit of their labors, one-tenth of it to God on the one hand, while also practically providing for the needs of those who served God on the other hand. This is why the word is so commonly used today to describe what we call our offerings or our contributions. This is why the church is called in 1 Timothy 5 to support and provide for the needs of the ministry of the church and as many others around the world as we are able to. Which is an interesting truth to consider, isn't it? Especially for us as a church. Since we're going to be considering our own church budget here at the end of this month, and we have been utilizing our savings as a church now for a few years, and those are quickly running out. We have to ask ourselves, are we walking in any sin as they were walking in any sin? What are we to take away from this? What would God have us to see today? And I think it's right there in verse 10 of chapter 3. Look back. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now you read that and you may think, I thought the Bible said not to put God to the test. And this is true. We shouldn't put God to the test in sinning. Well, God, I'm going to sin. Let's see what you do about it. But that's not what he's saying here, is it? It seems this is the same principle that Jesus himself takes up when he told us that it is more blessed to give than receive. Why? Why is this true? Why are they to give faithfully? and even sacrificially, trusting that the Lord is going to rain down His blessings upon them. Is this some kind of prosperity, name it, claim it, gospel that we're holding out here in the Bible? No. 
It is the eternal truth. And some of us who are awful dour and a lot more like Eeyore than Tigger should get this. That God delights to bless His people. And God delights to bless His people who hold their possessions of the world with an open hand and their eye toward the kingdom of God. That's exactly why Jesus promises in Matthew 6 to help our anxiety over these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. That's what Malachi is aiming to show them here. How did they get to this place? How did they get to the exact same spot that all their forefathers had come to where they were far from God, questioning His very faithfulness, and completely in love with the world so that they kept everything that they could build up in this world. How? Because they did not seek first the kingdom. They did not seek first God. They did not seek Him by faith and seek His righteousness to be applied to their life. Instead, they had sought to fill their earthly storehouses. They had kept from God what He had required of them. They had ignored His word to them and instead sought first all the things. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to try to remember it because I don't have it in my notes. He says, Seek earth, and you get nothing, I think. Seek heaven, and you get earth thrown in. And that's exactly what we find laid throughout Scripture. God now says, If you seek me, I will bless you. And as I said, this is not some prosperity, name it, claim it kind of stuff here where if you give $10,000 or if you give $1,000 of seed money today, tomorrow you're going to have 10000 in your bank account. That's not what it says, is it? No, he holds out the truth that your heart always goes where your money is going. That, that, that where you invest your time and your resources, and your energy, and your money is a reflection of where your heart is, and what you are for, and what you are living for. It's the call to watch what happens when you reallocate your money from temporal things to eternal things. As we consider our own giving of money, our considering of, of our gifts even, so let's even expand it outside of financial resources to the gifting that the Holy Spirit has promised and put within you and the time that He has given you. Because I don't know if it's news to some of you, but yesterday ain't coming back. That was the only one we're getting. So what are we doing with our money, our gifting, and our time? Is it being offered for the kingdom of God? Which I pray that you are. Because giving is an act of worship. It's a declaration to God and to the world that money is not our God. Time is not our God. Our own giftings even are from God, but they're not our God. We don't keep them for ourselves. As we get there, God closes this section of confronting their sin by answering the question some of you might be thinking this very minute. What's the point? Why? Look back at Malachi 3, 13 through 18. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or walking in his, as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. 
Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before them, before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. We see now that the final way God confronts their sin is to address their hard work and hard words against him. At their question of how they've spoken against him, God replies that they have claimed that serving God is useless, that it's vanity and a waste of time. I don't know if you feel that. I feel that from time to time. Why are we even doing this? What's the point? Do we get up and keep going or not? Maybe this is a question you've taken up for yourself. Not as a genuine question, but as a, what are the benefits of following God so you can weasel out of obedience? We think to ourselves, is it really worth all the sacrifice to follow God? And friends, we're living in a world where more and more that is becoming a sacrifice. What's the point of all this? And to this, to them and to us, God replies there in verses 16 and 18 through 18 with the most glorious foretelling of what will come to pass. What is it? That those who do fear the Lord, who turn to Him for salvation and reformation, that there is a promise held out for them. And perhaps this promise is the great, greatest confrontation of their sin because it shows us not the looming judgment of God, but the glory of His willingness to redeem. That's the reality here. Friends, we realize this, right? That, that the thing that's going to move us closer to God, to trusting in God and knowing God, isn't to give ourselves or to give somebody a bigger fear of hell. It's to give them a bigger fear of the Lord and a greater understanding of who He is and what He might do. And so what is it He's going to do? says that there is a book to be given. A book. Some of y'all hate reading. It's going to be a big book, though. It might be read to you, so there you go. You lucked out. Here it's called the book of remembrance of them who feared the Lord. We find this same book spoken of here in Malachi, opened up by the very Lamb of God, Jesus Himself, at the end of our Bibles in the book of Revelation. There we read in Revelation 21, 27 about our eternal home, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What does all this mean? It means that even in confronting our sin, even in calling out all that God has revealed to His people then, and prayerfully that He's revealed to us this morning, there is yet hope. There is a book that has all the names of all of those who have feared the Lord and come under the blood of the Lamb. There's hope. 
How do we know this? This is what the last section, the last chapter in the very Old Testament itself holds out. Look with me at chapter 4. As we see the ending of our sin. It says, therefore, behold, after just telling us about this book and this salvation that's held out for those who are recorded in this book, this is how Malachi closes. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The end. What's going on here? That's how your Old Testament ends. This is a chapter I think that all Christians should be fairly familiar with. If you're not, this may be a good one to even go and meditate on this week. What are you going to do with it, though? What's God wanting us to see here? As our very next page from my Bible, he says, the New Testament. Maybe yours says, the Gospel of Matthew. What do we do with this? Because from this to that is 400 years of the silence of God. And so this is God's final word to his people for 400 years. What do you do with it? Well, there's three things. Three, three things that I want us to see as we long for that redemption from God. First, in verse 1 through 3, we find that the future is held out. As we've seen over and over again in the Minor Prophets, the day of the Lord is spoken of here, when God will reveal Himself in unimaginable ways that would divide those who are far from Him between those who have come under Him. Or, as Jesus says, the sheep... From the goats. There is a day, Malachi says, when the sun of righteousness will rise and bring great warmth, the warmth of salvation upon those who fear the Lord and at the same time burn up like an oven those who despise Him. For the people of God, it is a day of victory, a day of rejoicing, and a day of hope. But to get there, what must they do? Well, that's what the next verse holds out. They must walk in the righteousness that God has given them. They must walk in obedience that the fear and the trust of the Lord has borne out. Remember, verse 4 says, the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I have commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. What do we find here? We we find the, the, the very key to reforming God's people. We find that 
that looking back is essential to moving forward. He begins by telling them about the future, but he says before you go there, you must look back here. You must remember all that God has done, all that God has said, and all that He has called you to, to be holy as He is holy, or you're never going to get to where I've just told you you may very well go. We come to learn then that God's Word remains the same. Therefore, obedience unto Him endures. He causes people to recall. And that has truly been the message of the prophets, isn't it? I've made this point over and over again, but there's not a whole bunch of new revelation in these prophets. No, they have called God's people back to covenant faithfulness, to remember God's Word from of old. And in that covenant faithfulness, they will find the very kingdom of God growing up around them. That's what they long for. And for, it's really what we long for. Even if you're here this morning, children and adults, if you're here this morning and you're wondering if this is even worth it, if this is even something we should give our lives to, That's the thing that all of us have. It is a hungry heart, to quote Bruce Springsteen. It's a hungry heart. All of us have it. Even those who deny that God exists or hate Him have a hunger in their heart to be in His kingdom and to be under His rule. God has hardwired us, hardwired us this way and there's no escaping it. But escaping wasn't the hope here in Malachi, was it? It was to experience it. And so the question is, when would this happen? When is this kingdom going to come? God, you have gone silent. Where are you? When are you going to bring this redemption? When are you coming? When are you giving us what our hearts desire? How are they to know that the very kingdom of God had arrived? And that's exactly what we find in those final two verses. We return now to this messenger that's first mentioned back in chapter 3. As you remember what was said about the messenger there? Look back at 3.1 if you can flip there quickly. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi said that there's a messenger who's coming. And when he comes, Yahweh himself will appear again in the temple. The one they seek who will usher in the kingdom of God will appear in the very dwelling place that God has had them build. And now we hear of this messenger, this forerunner before God's arrival. And he's brought up here again in chapter 4. What does it say about him there? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Here the messenger is given a name. It's the name of Elijah. Now our kids just learned about Elijah a few weeks ago on Wednesday evening. Who was Elijah? He was, he was like this, this premier prophet of God, wasn't he? Like he? He was delivering God's word to the people. And he was doing these awesome miracles. And here he's announced that of this man who, who called God's people back to trust in Yahweh. But at this point, in Malachi's prophecy, Elijah's been gone hundreds of years. And I say gone because you remember, he didn't die. 
who is taken up in a chariot of fire into the clouds. And so now, is Malachi saying that Elijah's going to come back? He rode up and boom, he's going to come on back. Was Elijah going to ride in the chariot back down? What's happening here? And why is this the final word God gives before he goes silent for 400 years? Some of us may be thinking, could you have made it a little bit clearer, God, before? Why don't you close things out here? Again, answer to these questions, and really to bring this whole series of sermons to a conclusion, we need to hear the words of Jesus himself. He helps us to interpret this passage in Matthew 11, 7 through 14. It's there as Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist being in prison that everything starts to fall in place. It says, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then, then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcibly advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who has come. There it is. There it is. What does this mean? It means that there was one who came. His name was John, and his job was to be the messenger before Yahweh's appearance. There was one who came whose name was John, and he was to take up the ministry of Elijah himself in calling the people back to repentance and to prepare the way of the kingdom of God and the arrival of God himself. So friends, as our Old Testament ends... As we close this series, we are left with the lingering question not of whether we are sinful. That much has been made clear. Not whether God cares about our sin. He has come at us about it. But with the question of can our sin be ended? Can life be found? Is there any hope held out for sinners in desperate need of saving? And friends, this is exactly what is held out for us here over the coming months, we are going to hear about this Elijah who has come. And we're going to hear and learn about the one he prepared the way for, Jesus Christ. Friends, it's no coincidence that God goes silent here. It's no coincidence that God goes quiet for 400 years. He had spoken to his people for a millennia in various ways and various times, and yet they had ignored His Word, refused His commands, and walked contrary to His kingdom. 
He had used men like Moses and David and prophets like Isaiah and Malachi here, and yet their ears were plugged, their eyes were covered, and their hearts were hard. So what is he going to do now? He stopped speaking to them. He stopped revealing himself as he once did. But he would not stay silent. He would not stay that way. No, as we'll come to see in the months and even the years ahead, God willing, the silence of God at the end of Malachi will now roll into the very Word of God taking on flesh. And the very message of God appearing in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Friends, it's this Jesus, Yahweh with us, that can bring the true end to the sin that plagues us. It's this Jesus that our hope and our life is found. It's in this Jesus that the very foundation of the kingdom is built. He is the long-awaited shepherd king, and He is the Son of Righteousness. And friend, if you're here today and you are not a follower of Him, find me after the service. I would love to talk to you more about how you can have hope and trust in Him. But for those of us who know the Son, let me close with this challenge as we close this series. Those of you who have felt the brightness of His beams upon your very soul, do you wait longingly for Him? Do you look for His coming again? As we look forward to gathering even next week to jump into the book of John, my question is, has God's Word formed us into a people who are ready for revival? Has God's Word formed us into a people who want to see life happening, not just among us, but out there? Will you be ready to see the hearts of your children turn back to the fathers and the hearts of you fathers turn back to the children? Are you ready to see the lost sons and daughters of the Father on high brought into Him? Will you be ready to believe and to declare to the world of the Son of Righteousness who was set against the blood-red sky of Calvary so that we might be saved, who died for our sakes to give us everlasting life? Friends, it is for Him that we live. It's for Him that we toil. So may we take it up. Let us pray. Oh God, we long for you to speak to us through your word. And so as we have humbly came before you this morning, opening your word and just seeking to understand it, God, I pray and I ask, that you would teach us, that you would change us, that you would show your glory once more. And God, I even pray, specifically pray, as we go from here, as we even prepare to gather next week, Lord, that you would do a work. Give us a great conviction to be people who share the gospel, who invite our family and friends to join us here, who give ourselves in seeking first the kingdom of God. Preserve us by your word, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.